come before you today and thank you so much for this opportunity you have given us this morning to corporately come together to sing praises uh, and to uh, hear your truth. And I pray as we come to your truth now that you would help us understand uh, what you intended, that you would work in our hearts uh, that which is pleasing, that we would be receptive and allow your spirit to change our thinking, that we would become more and more like your son Jesus. Lord, we thank you for this time when we ask you to bless it now. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today um, we begin a new study in uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians. And uh, I want to encourage you to be reading ahead uh, and read through the book. At the end of this uh, letter, Paul adjures them to have this letter read. And we will do that, certainly as we go through it also. Well, it seems like the evangelical church has gone through a paradigm shift in the last 30 or 40 years, and that shift is uh, so extensive uh, that you, you don't even see the church as it used to be. The term evangelical used to mean basically conservative and, and Christ-centered and, and focused on the gospel and, and his word, but you don't even see that these days. Indeed, we see that the gospel of Jesus Christ is being twisted by felt-need-seeker-sensitive charlatans who have crept into the church uh, wholly unnoticed. And evangelical churches are populated with uh, uh, the spiritually emaciated and so-called believers, uh, those whose emphasis is on their temporal needs, felt needs, rather than the things that are important as God would reveal in his word. And with that, there are those who will come alongside them and tickle their ears with what they want to hear. And they believe as they leave that they have received everything they need uh, for their walk with Jesus. But yet, uh, as I mentioned, they're emaciated in their spiritual condition because of a lack of the truth of God working in their hearts. So if you would talk to many pastors these days, many seminaries, they'd say, here's what churches need. But what do we really need? What do we really need? Today, we're going to see uh, from a greeting in this letter to the Thessalonians that what we need is God's grace and his peace daily. Again, turn with me to the book of First Thessalonians. And we're going to be going through the context of this book today, a lot of context. And you know, the context not inspired, so, but it's interesting to know it helps frame what we're going to look at. And then we'll get to the actual greeting today and then on to the letter, Lord willing, each week. Uh, I'm going to start with verse 1, and that's what we're going to look at today. But I want to read through the whole chapter um, just for some context for us, and then we'll come back and look at verse 1 in First Thessalonians. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, beloved brethren, by God, his choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with joy of the Holy Spirit." so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Makes you want to just keep reading, doesn't it? So I encourage you to read through the book of First Thessalonians. It's a short book. 
And as we begin this look at this book, it's always important to understand the context. And so I want to share some of the, the basic historical context first, and then I'll share some of the biblical context, and then we'll get into our text today. Well, the city of Thessalonica was originally named Therma because of many hot springs in the area. But in 315 B.C., it was renamed Thessalonica after the half-sister of Alexander the Great. It later became known as Salonica, and today is called Thessaloniki. And it's one of the few cities from the New Testament that is still in existence. You can go to and still see it, and it's still being populated. Now, Thessalonica was conquered by Rome in 168 B.C. and was made the capital of the entire Roman province of Macedonia. And the time, and at the time of the writing of this epistle, uh, the city had a population that was pretty large, maybe uh, up to 200,000 people. And it consisted mostly of Greeks, but there was a large Roman population and there was a very vocal Jewish minority. Now, Thessalonica was some 50 miles west of Philippi and about 100 miles north of Athens. And its location contributed to its importance as a city. It was probably one of the greatest cities along the entire Ignatian Highway or Road, a a great military highway that was constructed by Rome, which, uh, which Rome with, uh, which ran through Macedonia and parallel to the Aegean Sea. Now, with Thessalonica's location, uh, it was a very wealthy city. It was a very wealthy city. And uh, with that wealth, as with many metropolitan areas, there was lots of uh, evil and licentiousness, as with many cities. Well, that's a little brief historical context, but let's look at the biblical context for this letter. We see in Acts chapter 16 that Silas, Timothy, and Luke were with the Apostle Paul on what we call his second missionary journey. This was around the winter of 49 A.D., And having come from the east, they were kept by God from going to the south to Asia, as Luke would record in Acts 16, verse 6, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And then they were kept from going north to Turkey, as Luke shares again in verse 7. They were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Acts chapter 16, verse 7. So God in his sovereignty led them west, And passing through Mysia, they came down to Troas. And as they were waiting, Paul received his marching orders in a vision from the Lord uh, that they should go preach the gospel in Macedonia. And so Paul and his companions, in obedience to the Lord, left for Europe and uh, crossed the Aegean Sea and went on to Philippi. Now in Acts chapter 16, we have the record of the first European converts where Paul shares the gospel to Lydia and a group of women down at the riverside. And then after being imprisoned, Paul shares the gospel to the Philippian jailer and his household as God sovereignly breaks him free, but yet he doesn't leave. And the jailer says, What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And within that, his whole household was saved also. And within that first uh, few weeks, the nucleus for the Philippian church was filmed filmed, formed. <laughs> it wasn't filmed, no film back in those days, it was formed. Um, and Lydia and the jailer in her households. It's at this point that the Philippian magistrates, having treated Paul shamefully, released him and begged him to leave Philippi. So Paul and his companions then journeyed some 50 miles west to Thessalonica, and this is in the winter of 49 AD. And it's in Acts chapter 17 we have the account of the conversion of the Thessalonians and the birth of the church of the Thessalonians, where Paul remained there for at least three weeks until the Jews of the city were so enraged by his teaching about Jesus that they created a riot and Paul then fled to Berea and then on to Athens. Now, if you turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, I want to read this because, you know, my summary is there, but the Word of God does a much better job in giving us the exact details of what God wants us to know about the birth of this church. Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. And when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. 
And according to Paul's custom, he went to them. And for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, nothing's changed, has it, right? For the marketplace formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, and coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and others, they released them. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now he goes on. Now these, they were Jews, uh, were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, along with a number of prominent Greek, Greek women and men, But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came and likewise agitating and stirring up the crowds, agitating stirring up the crowds. And immediately the brethren sent Paul to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who conducted Paul, conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas, Receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him, and he was beholding, as he was beholding, a city full of idols. And that's a portion in Mars Hill. And I'm not going to read that portion. You can read that on your own, because he gets to the point that all men everywhere should repent, because God has fixed a day in which he'll judge. Go on to chapter 18 of Acts. And after these things, that was calling upon those in Athens to repent, he left Athens and went to Corinth. That's speaking of Paul. And uh, and then uh, we have in verse 9 of chapter 18, And the Lord said to Paul by night in a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city, speaking of Corinth. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. And so we have Paul in Athens uh, sent Timothy and Silas back to back to Thessalonica as we're going to see he decides to send him back to send Timothy back there and he shares that uh reality in the book of 1 Thessalonians in chapter 2. So turn there and this gives us a lot of context for what's going on in this book as we begin. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'm going to start with verse 17. This helps us understand what's going on. So Paul is in Corinth at this time, and he's going to share... Or excuse me, yeah, in Corinth. Now, second, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. But we, brethren, having been bereft of you for a short while, in person, not in spirit... We're all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, yet Satan thwarted us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exultation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. And then uh, chapter 3. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions for you yourselves know that we've been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know, for this reason, when I can endure it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. For fear the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor should be in vain. 
But now Timothy has come to us from you and has brought good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. So Paul in Athens sent Timothy back to check on them, and then he goes on to Corinth, and he is waiting for the response, and evidently he got the response. And that's what this letter was brought about from, the response of Paul to what Timothy had shared concerning the Thessalonians. Thessalonians. And this was probably sometime around the spring of 50 A.D. So it's an apparent by also by his answer that Timothy had brought up some problems that the Apostle Paul is addressing in this letter. He's brought up some, some apparent problems, but also some, some truth that he needed to address. We see in chapters 1 and 2 that the Apostle Paul was making it clear that God was working through their lives through the Word. And that although there was opposition attempting to slander the ministry of Paul, chapter 2, uh, that uh, they came with the right heart in the right uh, spirit, following the Lord, speaking what the Lord had entrusted to them. And then, although they were heavily persecuted and tempted to revert to their former lifestyle, the Apostle Paul shares truth in chapters 3 to 4 to encourage them not to give in, not to, 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 not to give in to the temptations of the tempter in regards to their faith. And indeed, they were confused and, and, and upset about those who had passed away and they were, didn't understand about the Lord's coming correctly. So the Apostle Paul addresses issues in chapters 4 and 5. Now, it's very important to note that this uh, letter is, is, reveals that this group of believers is only a couple months old in Christ. And you say, why? You say, why? Was it important to know that? Because in 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul refers back to so much truth that he taught them within the first three weeks of him being there with them before he left. And sadly, uh, we have a mindset in the church these days that goes like this. Well, people, they're not old enough to faith. They can't take the solid truth. It's too much for them. It's, it's, it's too much. And we find people 20 years old in the faith that can't take the word of God, that can't endure it. The Apostle Paul was sharing the truth of God, the deep things of Christ and his coming. He was sharing those things to this new group of believers within the first three weeks he was there. And then he is sharing back within less than a year truth that we all should understand and know. For even in the end of the book, he says, I adjure you to have this letter read to all the believers. So how can we apply this to our lives We need to recognize that Paul was concerned for their faith and their growth in the Lord. We're going to see that. That means God is concerned for our faith and our growth in the Lord. We also need to recognize that God expects us to grow up in the faith. Don't listen to what people say who who say they need to put the cookies in the bottom shelf for the kiddies. No, that's not true. We need to share the Word of God and allow God's Spirit to work in our hearts. And the reason why people don't receive it usually is because there's sin in the way that needs to get rooted out. I remember at an old folks' home I used to teach at years ago, years ago, these people would tell me, no, you can't share the Word of God the way you share it. You can't do that. They're not going to understand it. I just felt like, I'm just going to share the Word of God. That's how God's gifted me. And people who, if you leaned on your own understanding, would not understand it, they started to grasp the word of truth and grow in the word of God. So we need not lean on our own understanding. God expects us to grow in his truth. But there needs to be a desire for it first. If there isn't a desire for it, we're not going to grow. Proverbs chapter 2, Solomon writes, My son, if you receive my sayings and treasure my commandments within you, Make your ear attentive to wisdom and your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures. If you value God's truth in this manner, then, he says, you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. You've got to have a right attitude. Right attitude towards the word of God. Now, if you're still having trouble and you're only wanting the baby truths, the baby, baby stuff every week, just wanting milk all the time. Something's wrong. Something's wrong to see a 26-year-old man having a bottle of milk every day, right? Something's wrong. He's not growing up. The same thing for us in the faith. 
And maybe there's something that's gotten in the way. Turn to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. Hold your fingers in our passage in 1 Thessalonians. Hebrews chapter 5. Verse 11, now he's going to talk about Melchizedek and he's going to say concerning him, I can't really continue because there's a problem. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. Concerning him, in the context is Melchizedek, we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Something's happened. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, time sufficient, you should know the word of God well enough you can share it with others. He says, you have need, again, someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. That's the word of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who pertains of, partakes of only milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature, whom, because of practice, have trained their senses to discern good and evil. And he says, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching of, about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. We need to press on to maturity. Yes, we never leave the foundation, but we should press on on top of that foundation and build upon it. And this church was, Paul was there for only three or so weeks sharing the word of God, and he was run out of town. And then he responds back in this letter, revealing that he had taught them many things, and they understood many things within the first three weeks of their salvation. And he shares even more deeper truth with them within a year and desires that all of them and us would hear it. So with that in mind, let us leave the elementary teaching and move forward to maturity. The Thessalonians did. So what do we really need? What do we really need? Well, first of all, from this introduction, there's a lot of things we need and we'll see in Scripture, but from this introduction, we're going to see, first of all, that we need to see ourselves rightly. We often have a problem on how we view ourselves. And we can learn from the Apostle Paul. We need to see ourselves rightly. He was humble and as exemplified in the way he presented himself and his godly companions. Verse 1 of our passage, and this is what we'll look at today. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Notice we have the author identified. It is Paul, the Apostle Paul. Now, Silvanus and Timothy didn't co-write this letter. They were Paul's companions. And indeed, in the end, he doesn't say in chapter 5, verse 27, I, Silvanus and Timothy, adjure you by the Lord. He says, I, and it's Paul, adjure you by the Lord. Paul is the one writing this letter. So we have the Apostle Paul writing the letter. And what can we learn about him just from this letter? Notice, Paul was humble. He was humble. He does not elevate himself above his fellow servants. He says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. He doesn't say, I am Pope Paul or the great apostle Paul. You must listen to me. He doesn't say that with my helpers, Silas and Timothy. He doesn't say that. The apostle Paul ministered in the context of Humility. Humility. Yes, he was an apostle, and yet we see in Scripture that he only spoke of his apostleship inspired by the Spirit when he needed to have that spiritual authority, when God needed to institute that. He needed to affirm uh, his, his spiritual gifting for those who needed to hear it at times. And like in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 and other passages, Paul says he is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. It was God that determined this. He's not bragging there. And so he would speak of his apostleship inspired by the Spirit to affirm his authority and also to, to, to address threats to that authority like we see in 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians. But he never spoke of it to elevate himself. And here we see he had no need of saying he was the Apostle Paul. There was an acceptance within the Thessalonian church of how God had gifted him and how he was to minister. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. Paul ministered in a context of humility. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. We see this. We see this. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9. 
It's so easy for us to get puffed up in areas that maybe even the Lord has gifted us in. Where there's a response by people, whatever it might be. Paul wasn't that way. Paul never took the glory. He never took it. He always gave it to God. He always depended upon Him. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9. He says, For I am the least of the apostles. I'm the lowest and not fit to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. And that's the worst sin there is, persecuting the church of God. We'll see that. He said he was the chief of sinners in another passage. And that's why. He persecuted Christ. Remember Jesus said on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who art thou, Lord? It says, but by the grace of God, verse 10, I am what I am. By his grace, that's God's unmerited favor. That's how I'm an apostle. That's how I do this, he says. And his grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. It's God's grace that has done this. Paul was humble. Galatians chapter 6, and I'll just read this for you. Verse 2, Paul says, Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. For, if you think you're better than anyone else, by the way, that's the context, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. If you think you're greater than to bear someone else's burden, something's wrong here. If you think you're something when you are nothing, you deceive yourself. You deceive yourself. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We see the Apostle Paul making it clear to the Corinthians who wanted to elevate men. There's a lot of people out there that want to elevate men, teachers, whatever it might be. They want to elevate them. They want to put them on a pedestal. I'm of this person. I'm of that person not recognizing that it is God who works through them and they are nothing. It's by His grace that they're able to do those things. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4. For when one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. They were servants of the Lord through whom this happened, but it was the Lord that did it. And he says here, he says here, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. You see the humility in the Apostle Paul. The humility in the Apostle Paul. He was humble. Well, how about you and I? Are we humble? Do we see ourselves rightly? that uh, we, we are what we are because of what Christ has done. And anything that we have done that has been good has been because a good God did it through us. And so he gets all the glory that we are what we are, and yet we get to participate. We are servants that God uses and allows to, to, to function within his kingdom for his glory. What a privilege. But the Apostle Paul saw it rightly. And we see this here in his, his introduction. Paul Silvanus and Timothy. Well, what about uh, his companions? He says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Well, concerning Silvanus, Silvanus is the Silas of Acts. So if you have someone named Silas, you can name him Silvanus also, right? <laughs> Try that someday. Silas was probably his Aramaic name, and Silvanus his Roman or Gentile name. In Acts 15, we learn much about Silas. In verse 22, he was one of the leading men among the brethren. That's believers. Acts 15:32, he was a prophet. It says, and Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. And I like that one because that's the justification for long sermons, right? <laughs> he strengthened them with a lengthy message. The word of God, right? Good guy, Silas. In verse 40 of chapter 15, after Paul and Barnabas had a sharp disagreement about John Mark, who had previously deserted them, uh, Paul chose Silas to accompany him on what we call his second missionary journey. Later on, we see Silas became a companion and aid to the apostle Peter. In 1 Peter 5.12, he calls him a faithful brother. 1 Peter 5.12, through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, Peter writes, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Would someone inspired by the Spirit of God, well, there's no one doing that anymore, but would someone see your life and say, you are a faithful brother or sister? 
What they say, faithful in the Lord, faithful. That's not doesn't mean perfect. We fail, we confess our sins. But are you faithful? Silas was faithful. Silas was faithful. So we have Paul, Silas, or Silvanus. And then what do we know about Timothy? Timothy, he's a good guy too. He's a good guy too. We have much in the word concerning Timothy. Indeed, Scripture points to the fact that he was a native of either Derby or Lystra. These were two little towns in the area of Galatia. His mother was a Jew by the name of Eunice, his grandmother Lois, and his father was a Greek. It's apparent that his mother and grandmother were saved. His father wasn't probably. And having not been circumcised, we see, was an indication that he probably was educated in the Greek culture. Now, in 2 Timothy, we know that he learned the truth concerning salvation from the scriptures. And he knew them from childhood by his believing mother Eunice and his believing grandmother Lois. Great grandma, a good, not great, but a, a great grandma and a great mother there, right? Sharing the truth of God to him. Now, we don't know when he was converted to Christ. We don't know when that happened, when he came to Christ. But we know that when Paul had met him, he had already become a, a, a recognized follower of Christ. Turn to Acts chapter 16, and I want to read this portion about Timothy. Acts chapter 16, verse 1, And when he came to also to Derbe, speaking of Paul, to Derbe and to Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to take this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were, not, who were in those parts where they all knew that his father was a Greek. So the apostle Paul takes him on. And I don't know if we really recognize how much Timothy was a part of the apostle Paul's life. Paul speaks of him as his true child in the faith, his beloved son in the Lord, his brother, his co-worker, his fellow servant, his fellow slave. He was with Paul in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, Ephesus, and Rome. He's associated with uh, the writings, Paul's writings of some of his epistles, such as 2 Corinthians, Colossians, Philippians, Romans, and as we see here in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. And in, his, and in Paul's letters to 1 and 2 Timothy, those letters, they are to Timothy specifically. And Paul calls him in 1 Timothy 6.11, a man of God. A man of God. And who were Paul's last inspired words to? To Timothy. To Timothy. Timothy was of great use to the Apostle Paul. He was willing to do anything that Paul wanted him to do in the Lord. We see that, and I read it earlier in 1 Thessalonians 3, that he sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. He was a good guy. He could trust him in the Lord. He sent him to strengthen them and encourage them as to the faith. Is this not what we saw when we went to the book of Philippians? Turn to Philippians chapter 2. We see the Apostle Paul speaking of Timothy when he's under house arrest in Rome. Paul was. Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. He says here, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. Notice what he says about Timothy. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. That's their spiritual welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus, But you know his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Timothy was a good guy. And by the way, Timothy followed Paul's advice. 2 Timothy said, Pursue faith, love, perseverance, or peace with those who call upon the name of the Lord with a pure heart. You see, the Apostle Paul gave Timothy that advice, but he took that advice himself. The Apostle Paul hung out with godly men, with godly men who faithfully served the Lord. That's who he hung out with. Who do you hang out with? Do you hang out with nominal believers where you don't know if they know the Lord or not? It's not saying that we can't be acquaintances trying to share truth with them and come alongside them and encourage them. 
But who do you hang out with? Who do you hang out with? The Apostle Paul followed his own advice. 1 Corinthians 15.33 Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Proverbs 13.20 He who walks with wise men will be wise. And that's biblical wisdom, by the way, in the context of Proverbs. But the companion of fools will suffer harm. And what did Paul tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22? I just mentioned it earlier, but I'll share the whole verse. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue, chase after righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call upon the name of the Lord from a pure heart. There's a lot of people that call upon the name of the Lord, but they got a lot of sin and they're not dealing with it. With those who call upon the name of the Lord with a pure heart, they're confessors of sin. They're walking with Jesus. So then, the Apostle Paul uh, was a godly man. He was humble, and he chose and hung out with, as the Lord led him, godly men, godly men. So what do we really need? We need to learn from Paul's example of who he hung out with, who he walked with. We need to learn from his example of his own view of himself and the way he relayed the truth. Now, as we continue our look at this small greeting, I think we also need to remember our position in Christ because when things get difficult, when things get hard, when you suffer for following Jesus, believe me, you may be suffering for sin or whatever it might be in your life's heart or whatever it is, but when you turn to Jesus, it gets difficult. You will suffer for following him temporarily for the glories to follow. When you decide to do what's right, it gets difficult and we can get discouraged and we can, uh, our faith can be tested and it can wane at times if we don't get encouraged. So the Apostle Paul, I believe, is encouraging us, encouraging specifically the Thessalonians, but us here, about where they stand in Christ. Back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Silas and, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here we have a physical greeting. It's Paul and my companions to these people. To. Here's who he's writing to. Here's who he's writing to. He says, first of all, and gives a physical description to the church of the Thessalonians. The term church, ecclesia, speaks of called out ones. You see, we don't become the church because we go to church. We become the church when we are called out of sin and darkness into his marvelous light. When we trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we are delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved Son. We become part of the body of Christ, the church, the called out ones. That's what the word church means. Called out ones. And so he says to the church, that's believers of the Thessalonians, the church consisting of Thessalonians, those who live there in Thessalonica. The church, he says, not the church in Thessalonica, he says the church of the Thessalonians, the church of the Thessalonians, the called out ones, the body of Christ consisting of Thessalonians. And then notice we have a spiritual description. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now often in Scripture we have the term church of God denoting that it's God's church. Possessive, it's His. It's His. That we are the church having been bought with a price. It's His. So why does he use this term here, the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the preposition en, en, in Greek, translated in here, speaks of a spatial relationship. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before I explain that, I want to give you one quick observation uh, in our English language, we have the definite article in God the Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the Greek, there isn't a definite article here, and it's not like English. It's a little different. But when the definite article is absent in Greek, it can point to the quality or nature or essence of something. It can emphasize that. Emphasize that. It effectively makes the nouns Father and Lord somewhat qualitative. It's looking at the quality of it, of, a, of an item or person. Thus, 
being in God the Father draws our attention to our relationship with our loving and caring Heavenly Father who is all-powerful and sovereign over all, who will provide and protect for his children. And it is through Christ that we come into a relationship with the living God. Turn to 1 John chapter 4, right near Revelation. 1 John chapter 4, verse 14. And sometimes I go quick on the references. Feel free to take notes on the, the outline I give you and to look it up later. I don't want to have you miss it looking for it while I'm sharing, so feel free to do it as the Lord leads you. 1 John chapter 4, verse 14. And we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Jesus is the Savior of the world. He says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. In God. Get that? And we have come to know that we have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. There is a relationship with God because of Jesus Christ. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, that sin that was in the way is broken, and you now are in Christ, you are in God, you have a relationship with the living God. Relationship with the living God. And this little phrase here, he says, in God the Father, in God. That's where you are. That's, your, that's, your, that's where you are. You are in a relationship with him and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this little phrase in the Lord Jesus Christ speaks of being in Christ, in Christ. We see that uh, throughout many passages. And what does it mean to be in Christ? You see, when you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, you are delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. You are redeemed. The payment for your sin has been paid on the cross that was paid on the cross is applied to you. You are baptized or placed into the body of Christ, not by water, spiritually speaking, identified with Christ. You are set apart in Christ, sanctified, made holy in Christ. The spirit of God comes within you to dwell in you, Christ in you. And once separated by sin, now we are together with him forgiven. We become his possession, bought with a great price, the blood of the lamb. We are set apart from sin to God. And we are united with the very life of Christ. We are in Christ and he is holy and thus we in position are holy. We are in Christ. Romans chapter 8, 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have a relationship with Him. We are in Christ. We are in Christ. You see, without Christ, you are in your sins. You are identified by them. But once you believe and trust in Jesus Christ, you believe that He died for your sins and rose from the dead. It's God who took on Him in flesh for you. You humble yourself. You cry out for salvation. Your heart of hearts to God then we become his people. We are in Christ. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness, we see, of God in him. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are in God the Father and you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. It speaks of a relationship, a relationship now. And if you are suffering, that is comforting. You see, these Thessalonians needed encouragement. We're going to see later on that they were suffering. They were suffering for coming to faith. And in chapter 3, we see they were being tempted by the tempter as to their faith. And the persecution that they were going through was testing them. And Paul begins this letter with this great truth of encouragement that when we suffer, we are need to remember we are in God the Father we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing is going to separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing is going to separate you from the Lord. Nothing. You're in Him. You're in Him. You are safe and secure no matter what it appears might happen. You know, we see that Christ is our life. Colossians chapter 3, If then you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. 
When times are tough, persecution rages, do you see yourself safely in the stable, loving, powerful, sovereign hand of God because of Christ? You're in Christ. You're in Christ. You have a new relationship and it's a relationship that will never be broken forever and ever. And we have the Spirit of God as a pledge to the redemption of our bodies, to the finishing of the job. They needed to be reminded who they were in. They're in God the Father and in Christ. Brother and sister, do you realize what God has done in placing us in a relationship with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ? Everything has changed. It's all different now because of Christ. It's all different And that should encourage us. So then, what do we need? We need to see ourselves rightly. We need to recognize we are safe in God's hands. We are in Christ. We are in God the Father. And now we move to the greeting, the specific greeting in this letter, where he says very simply, grace to you, back in chapter 1, verse 1 at the end, grace to you and peace. Pretty simple greeting. Very simple salutation. And in this salutation, we see God's desire for us. Now, this is a very common greeting of the Apostle Paul, which he begins every epistle, except for First and Second Timothy, ten to be exact. He uses the phrase, grace to you and peace, and then in, in Titus, grace and peace. Now, if some look at this greeting and they say, well, it's just a normal greeting that's just kind of a salutation, grace to you, it's kind of like saying shalom, it's not really thought of or there's nothing really important about it. Well, I disagree with that. I believe every word is inspired and that uh, God is, there is a meaning behind this. This is the greeting, grace to you and peace. Paul shares it, grace to you and peace. Well, what does he mean by this? The term grace, charis, is in its most basic form, speaks of an unearned gift or unmerited favor. It speaks of that freely bestowed as a gift in no return for any merit or work. It speaks of unmerited favor. And yet in Scripture we see that this word speaks none other than an attribute of the living God. In 1 Peter 5.10, Peter spoke of the God of all grace. The God of all grace. You see, the only way we can understand grace is that we recognize that God God is the God of all grace. You see, indeed, God's unmerited favor in the person of Christ has been revealed to us. Take, for instance, uh, John 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory of the only begotten One from the Father, full of grace and truth. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. You know God's grace. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Let's turn here. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. You see, to understand grace, we need to understand what Christ did for us. That's when you'll understand grace. What Jesus Christ did for us how he bestowed God's unmerited favor upon us for nothing that we had done, for nothing you could do. It was all God, all God. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. God's grace has been manifested in the person of Jesus Christ coming to die for our sins. That's God's grace. We didn't deserve it, but God did it anyway. He did it for us. And that same grace is instructing us, verse 12, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Tremendous reality, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. The offer is to everyone. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Not a scriptures today. Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness 
towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. Been saved by grace. You see, you haven't been saved if you brought something to the table. When you came to Jesus, if you had something on the table, I've done this good, I've done that, whatever it might be, if you haven't been humbled to the point where you realize I'm a sinner and I need a Savior, if you've done something religiously, or it's my family, I hear people, well, when did you become a Christian? Well, I was raised a Christian. No, 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 no. When did you become a Christian? When did you trust in Jesus Christ? When did you turn from your sin, repent? You didn't have to use those words, but when did you realize you're a sinner and you turn to Jesus? Lord, save me. When did that happen? That's when we experience his grace. We experience his unmerited favor and we are saved from our sins. We're redeemed. We're cleansed. Tremendous, wonderful reality. God's grace is manifest in salvation. It is pictured in what Christ has done. The grace of God has appeared. But also, we function by his grace. We, we come into this grace in which we stand. We function by his unmerited favor to, upon us on a daily basis. Again, what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? I shared this already, but he said, he said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And that grace proved, grace towards me did not prove to be vain, but I labored more than all of them, but not I, the grace of God within me. God's favor. God's favor. Indeed, Peter would share in his first letter that even our spiritual gifting we are to employ as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. 1 Peter 4.10 We are saved by grace, but it is God's desire to function by his grace. I can't do it, but I trust you and I believe that you will because you said you will. And he uses his grace and he empowers us. His grace is perfected in weakness, as Paul would say, as we heard read earlier. Peter would say in his second letter, grace and peace be multiplied to you. May be multiplied. May it just go on and on and on. You see, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from truly trusting in Christ, relying on him, we can do nothing of eternal value. The Apostle Paul shares in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, not that we are adequate to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. If you think you are adequate, you are sorely misunderstood because God gives you the breath even to live every second. He's the giver of life. And when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you begin to realize that he gives us natural talents. He gives us desires. He gives us spiritual gifts. But to function in those, for him to be glorified, we need to rely on his grace. And he's faithful to do it through us. His grace is sufficient. And that's God's desire for you. Grace to you. Grace to you. God's grace to you. God wants you to function by his grace. No longer by your own efforts. He wants you to trust in his son Jesus. Oh, and what a wonderful thing it is when we rely on his grace. Because God gets all the glory. God gets all the glory and we get the joy. I tell you right now, we get the joy. Grace to you. Grace to you. Now, it's really important to realize that in this passage here, it says grace to you and peace. And in those other ten times, Paul says the same thing, grace to you and peace. Now, some translations have translated grace and peace to you. And I think that's not a good translation. It says literally grace to you and peace. You see, because we don't receive his peace till we're functioning by his grace. When we function by his grace, there is great peace. There is great peace. Peace never comes before grace. You see, we needed his grace to be saved, and when we received his grace in the person of Jesus Christ, then we received his peace. And then now we stand in that grace. We have that very truth revealed in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, the truth that God made us right with him through faith in Jesus he says we have peace with God. God's grace through Jesus Christ brings peace. Brings peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now we stand by his grace. We stand in it. Jesus made peace through the blood of his cross, Colossians 1.20. He made peace. 
You see, it's God's desire for us to function by his grace and his peace, but this is practical peace here. This is peace for as we walk throughout the day. This is peace for our life in the midst of this, this, this world that is turned upside down every day by who knows what and whatever. It happens all the time. We see so much evil throughout. We have our own failings, the failings of others, whatever it might be. But God wants us to walk in peace. In peace. Turn to Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, and we saw this when we went through it. Very important. You see, because we can have his peace if we want to. And you'll see why and how. Philippians 4, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. That's a command not to worry, by the way. And you can't stop on your own. You don't have the power not to. But if you believe the truth, God will enable you to. It's by faith, not by your strength. So many of you can't stop worrying because you're trying to stop on your own. Don't do that. Trust the Lord. Obey him. Trust and obey. There's no other way. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Be praying about it and thanking God about it. There's the solution. Let your request be known to God. And what? The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There's a promise. But notice, keep going. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good repute, if there is any excellence, anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things, the things you have learned and received and heard from me. Practice these things, and the God of peace shall be with you. Let your mind dwell on the truths concerning Christ and his word. Do what he says by his power and strength. And the God of peace is with you. Grace to you and peace. That's what God wants. Through the Spirit, love, joy, peace, peace, peace. There's a rest, resting in Jesus. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let your heart not be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Grace to you and peace. Now finishing this up, where does this grace and peace come from? It's interesting that every other greeting that Paul shares, he says it this way. He says it in, uh, in Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Philemon, and his second letter to the Thessalonians. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, here's who it's from. It's from God, through Jesus. That's where it comes. Now, why doesn't he say it in our letter? Why does he just say grace to you and peace? And it seems like an anomaly. Well, I believe it's because he's already said that you are in God and also in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's already implied. It's already implied. So where does grace and peace come from on a practical basis every day? It comes from God through Christ. As we rely on Jesus Christ, God brings his grace and his peace into our lives to deal with any situation to deal with any situation or, or that's come upon you, whatever it might be, God's grace is sufficient. His power is perfected in weakness. Rest in that grace. Rest in that provision. So then, this is God's desire. What do we really need? We need God's grace to us. And we need his peace. And that's what God wants for you. But you got to root out sin. And how do you do that? You confess it. You admit it. Not deceitfully, but honestly. Just admit it. And then believe what God says and trust in Jesus and you will experience his grace and his peace. Well, I began speaking about how the evangelical church has shifted to a focus on one's felt needs rather than Christ and his word. Let us not do that. God wants us to grow in the grace and knowledge of his son he wants us to walk in the context of his grace and peace. And the way that we do that is allowing his word to dwell richly in our hearts as we walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this introduction. And I thank you that it's your desire that we walk in your grace and experience your peace. Grace to us and peace. Father, may we 
recognize and understand that it only comes through your son Jesus. May we yield our hearts over. May we submit ourselves to a good God. For you have given your son for us. You love us so much. And he willingly came and died for us. May we recognize that we are in you and in your son. And may we walk in the provision of your grace and your peace that came through your son, the Redeemer, who paid the price for our sins. May he get all the glory and praise. We pray this in his name.